where we were looking at a, these short, hard bursts of exercise, and we showed that the activation of these molecular signaling pathways were very similar to what you see with a more traditional, moderate intensity, continuous training approach. And so the takeaways there are twofold. One, if you make the apples to apples comparison, so we're gonna compare a given dose of tr the traditional moderate approach and high intensity intervals, you can see some superior benefits with interval training. So again, when you're comparing a given dose of exercise, actually the activation of some of these pathways can be superior and that might relate to some fiber type differences uh, with this type of exercise. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Professor Martin Jabala from McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Welcome, Martin. Uh, hello. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I've been uh, really keen to speak to you. I've been following your work for, for many years, both as a, I suppose, personal interest around um, interval training, but also uh, the, the research you have published um, on more the molecular understandings that's happening in the muscle around interval training, but also uh, you've translated this into practical applications and have released a, a book on it, the One Minute Workout. So I'm really keen to dive into all the, the technical detail, but also the, the practical applications of interval training. So um, before we get into the, the finer details, I'm always curious on how researchers end up in their sort of little niche area. So how is it that you um, got into interval training? Yeah. So for over 20 years, I've taught a course called the integrative physiology of human performance. And when I first started teaching that course, I was a busy young assistant professor with a working spouse and two young children. Uh, and so quite ironically for a professor of exercise physiology, found myself with little time to work out. And, and so that dovetailed with a professional interest in the course that I taught, the students were always interested in the training regimes of elite athletes. And, and so I would ask a probing question of, you know, why do these athletes perform these short, hard sprints? How, do that, how does that facilitate their endurance? And that would lead to a discussion of the underlying physiology and metabolic pathways. And so it was this sort of dovetailing of a personal and professional interest. I started you know, doing some interval training on my own, found that it was quite effective for me as a way to maintain fitness. And that's led to, you know, a, a research, uh, I guess, output that spanned 20 years or so now. Wow. And what's your current role? So I'm a professor. Uh, I'm the faculty of science research chair in integrative uh, physiology at McMaster. Uh, and I'm a recovering department chair. So I was administrator <laughs> for 10 years, but okay. I've, uh, I've, I've uh, stepped aside from that role. And when did you first uh, publish on interval training? Probably, our, well, our first study that really attracted attention was was two thousand and five, a, a oh. paper in in JAP that you know one of those just sometimes papers take off, and uh, the media interest in it was was overwhelming. I recall at at the time, but that that was sort of the first uh, real notable paper from our group. Okay, um, so let's just first. Uh, define some of these terms there's sit hit and mict and um what does that mean and i suppose more from a pragmatic sense what discuss intervals and versus steady state yeah so it's quite the alphabet soup and i think actually that hinders the translation of the work i i like to use the catch-all term interval training which to me is just alternating periods of more intense effort with periods of recovery uh, i like to use the analogy of green yellow and red zones whereas mm -hmm. green is you know and that doesn't you know people hear the term interval training and they think it's only this all out as hard as you can go gut busting type exercise that's certainly one flavor that would be the red zone but interval walking is an example so just light moderate alternating periods of activity that's been studied for example in individuals with uh, with type 2 diabetes um the yellow zone would be classic high intensity interval training and sort of the cutoff there. 
is efforts that exceed or elicit a relative heart rate of about 80% of maximum, but they're still submaximal efforts in nature. And again, you have these red zone efforts, which is this true all out super maximal type exercise. And even within that framework, you have aerobic based interval training and resistance based interval training, ranging from calisthenics to more vigorous bodyweight style exercise to these quite extreme interval or extreme uh, training conditioning programs with uh, intensive plyometrics and things like that. Yeah, right. Um, so one of the benefits of exercise, obviously, is cardiovascular health, and we'll get to that. And um, we know the importance of like maintaining a healthy weight and blood glucose. I suppose just sort of high level, but the benefits well, I'm sure we'll get into for interval training is the the time efficiency. Um, so just to sort of reiterate, why is it so important to maintain fitness and mobility and strength and so forth as we age? How does that compare to other sort of risk factors that we know? Yeah, sure. So uh, speaking specifically about cardiorespiratory fitness first, which of course, as you would know, reflects the underlying capacity of the heart, the lungs, the blood vessels to pump oxygen through the body. Cardiorespiratory fitness is highly correlated with risk of dying from all causes and risk of developing uh, various ailments, cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes. And so, you know, epidemiological evidence would tell us that having a one met higher cardiorespiratory fitness. So that's maybe a 10% higher average fitness level is associated with a 13% lower risk of dying from all causes, a 15% lower risk of developing cardiovascular disease to put that into metrics that we might measure in the clinician's office the risk reduction is comparable uh, to about a five point drop in blood pressure, uh, about two inches or seven centimeters off your waist, wow. uh, or a one millimolar drop in blood glucose. So wow. often when you frame it within those more traditional markers, it really emphasizes the important uh, role of, of fitness in, in disease risk and mortality. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know it can be quite difficult for some people to, to lose you know, that significant amount of weight or drop the blood sugars just via diet alone. Um, so it's, yeah, really powerful intervention if uh, you can, yeah, do it and um, get some benefits. I'm curious on, and I'm not like, I, I always like this sort of evolutionary perspective of our physiology, but I'm not sort of wedded to it, but um, is there been any research or from an evolution perspective, did we do much sort of interval training, like, you know, in our sort of ancestral past or, you know, um, there's still some, you know, um, isolated uh, hunter-gatherer tribes. Um, I know they do a lot of sort of aerobic activity, but is there a sort of, a, you know, evolutionary argument for doing interval training as part of your fitness regime? I, I, I've learned to tread carefully here because I think um, there can yeah. be a tendency to overstatement. And the other, you know, just to frame our discussion a little bit is I will often see these very polarized debates mm -hmm. and you'll see people go off on Twitter with these polemics and even to the point of scientists literally demonizing the work of others or attempting to, you know, knock down the work of others. And, you know, if we take a step back and we're all really on the same page of just trying to promote physical activity interventions and behavior and engagement, uh, I, I see little, you know, little place for these polarizing uh, discussions, although clearly scientific debate is healthy and, and it can really advance uh, things. So that, you know, that's just a, a small backdrop, maybe to frame the discussion. I, you know, it's often said, if you watch children play in the park, very few sort of jog at a moderate play, you know, pace for 30 minutes, they sort of sprint and jump and run. And so there has been some suggestions that interval training can more resemble uh, natural play. Uh, and so I, I, I think it, it has uh, a place in our evolutionary history, but for lots of reasons, we are clearly, um, you know, we're, we're not as physically active as, 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 as we used to. And so again, I, I I'm, I'm careful not to overstate the, yeah. uh, the perspective there, nor am I an expert in that. Uh, no, in that that's area. fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. I understand it. It's um, very polarized. And um, one of the reasons I did get you on is you don't really have a dog in the fight. You just, you just happen to study interval training. Um, and I'll probably get to it. Yeah, we will in a moment. It was, partly in um, interest out of like our adaptation to exercise, which we'll, we'll get into a moment, like um, this sort of energy depletion state, is that sort of what we've evolved to? So um, we'll hold that thought, but yeah, that, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Um, I think one of the challenges, as you know, 
um, in probably Canada and similar to Australia is many of our um, patients and ourselves aren't getting enough activity. And if we can get any sort of activity and it's a bonus, and this is just an, another tool in the toolkit. Um, yeah, that's our approach too. You know, we talk about expanding the movement menu. And again, for so many, there's only so many ways you can sort of jump on a treadmill and jog at a moderate pace for 45 minutes or so. And, and again, we're speaking broadly, but for a lot of people, that's their sense of, you know, working out or exercising is this special thing you do at a special place or a gym after you change into spandex. And we can sort of lose this idea of, of physical activity. And, you know, many people just simply would not believe that with some short bursts of exercise that can provide benefit. And so our approach is really just trying to uh, provide a scientific underpinning to validate at least the efficacy of this work, uh, showing that it can be potentially effective as a public health tool or public health intervention. Uh, but of course, you know, there's, uh, there's differing opinions in that regard. True. All right. Um, and briefly... What's this history of interval training? Has it been, um, I, th I think it's sort of for the hundred years, there's sort of hints through um, world-class athletes. And then um, there's might be some sprinkling of research um, many decades ago, but it really took off probably um, the last two decades or so. So what's the sort of the background there? Yeah, I think that's fair. And, you know, the, the more I'm involved in this field, the more I appreciate both the athletic and the scientific history. Uh, as you alluded to, you know, athletes were winning gold medals near the turn of the century using an interval-based approach to middle and long distance uh, running. Uh, you know, from a scientific perspective, at least English language publications around interval training started to appear the late 1950s and into the 1960s. Uh, and I, you know, I, I chart this now over the last 10 years in particular, there's just been exponential growth and now over 600 papers a year on the topic of interval training are being published, which it makes it very, very challenging to stay on top of the field. Last point is we tend to rediscover this approach yeah. every decade or so. And there was a classic program that was developed by the Canadian government in the late 1950s called 5BX, Five Basic Exercises, which was designed for service members stationed in the far north at the height of the Cold War. You know, these individuals had no specialized equipment. And so it was a way to get these air, mainly airmen at the time, back into shape relatively quickly. And that concept spread beyond the military and 20 million pamphlets advertising 5BX were distributed to the Canadian public. So there's nothing new about this mm. approach, even for uh, promoting fitness among the general public. But as you say, just an explosion of research over the last decade or so. Excellent. So I want to turn to some of the research you're doing. This is sort of tying into that evolutionary question I um, fumbled through, but I'm curious on the the adaptation to interval exercise because, uh, as we'll probably get into, the I think one of the benefits is that um, time efficiency. You can get so much bang for your buck. Um, so, yeah, can you describe what's happening when we do interval efforts and and sort of the broad benefits or the, re the responses and the adaptations we get? Sure. And, you know, I, I like to think of it as, you know, the underlying physiology is the same with the potential applications for health or performance, but the way that we can trigger responses that can occur in different ways. And so I'll, I'll give you an example. So, I, you know, I'm trained as a muscle physiologist. I'm interested in these molecular signaling proteins that lead to skeletal muscle remodeling. And you can think of some of these proteins as molecular fuel gauges. So they sense changes or disturbances within the muscle cell and they adapt or respond by trying to reduce that disturbance. You know, that's the classic training induced physiological remodeling. And we've shown, for example, actually some of this work was in collaboration with researchers at the University of Melbourne, where we were looking at a, these short hard bursts of exercise. And we showed that the activation of these molecular signaling pathways we're very similar to what you see with a more traditional, moderate intensity, continuous training approach. And so the takeaways there are twofold. One, if you make the apples to apples comparison, so we're gonna compare a given dose of tr the traditional moderate approach and high intensity intervals, you can see some superior benefits with interval training. So again, when you're comparing a given dose of exercise 
actually the activation of some of these pathways can be superior. And that might relate to some fiber type differences uh, with this type of exercise. Many people are interested in that apples to oranges comparison. You know, how does a relatively small dose mm -hmm. of intervals compare to a much larger volume of the traditional approach? And that's where we've seen these very similar responses, despite big differences in total exercise volume. And so the speculation there is, in addition to fiber type, it might also relate to the rate of energy disturbance. So whether it's an increase in calcium or a, a drop in ATP or some of these other uh, signals that are sensed within the body, if they drop relatively quickly, you're almost getting an exaggerated response, it, it appears, uh, or at least that's sort of our working idea for why this type of exercise may be so potent. And this ultimately translates into mitochondrial biogenesis in the skeletal muscle? Absolutely. So it's, you know, these molecular signaling pathways, uh, AMPK activated protein kinase, uh, calcium activated protein kinase, ultimately uh, tend to converge on PGC1 alpha, a transcriptional co-activator, which is, you know, many view it as a, a master regulator. Clearly, it's a very important regulator of mitochondrial biogenesis. If you phosphorylate and turn on, activate PGC1 alpha, you're going to get mitochondria, new mitochondrial growth. Uh, and so in our studies, we'll tend to do either these acute studies and look at acute activation of these signaling pathways or mitochondria, mitochondrial content is, is a primary outcome in a lot of our training studies. Wow. And just to reiterate, so this um, benefit or response can be elicited from like up to, you know, as low as sort of three, three efforts in a, in a session over a period of time. Yeah, it, it's a surprisingly small dose. And so, uh, you know, one of our studies that got the most attention, we were comparing and where the name of the book, the one minute workout came from, we were looking at an exercise protocol that involved three 20 second all out bursts of cycling. Now that was within a 10 minute time commitment, start to finish a little bit of warm up, cool down some recovery, but basically three 20 second bursts or one minute of very intense effort. And we compared that to another group that was doing 50 minutes, five, zero minutes of continuous moderate intensity training, both groups training three times a week for 12 weeks. And after the intervention, we saw very similar improvements. Uh, both groups experienced about a 20% improvement in cardiorespiratory fitness. Both groups experienced similar increases in their mitochondrial content. And we were looking at insulin sensitivity using a relatively robust technique, uh, the in, um, uh, intravenous glucose tolerance test met method. And we saw similar improvements. So, uh, and this was despite a five-fold difference between the training groups in total training volume and total time commitment. So just one example of uh, some of the work that's been done from our laboratory, as well as lots of good work elsewhere, showing similar responses with these various types of comparisons. Hmm, amazing. And I haven't looked too much into this. Um, are there systemic benefits or uh, like an endocrine or hormonal response from our muscles during exercise, whether it's uh, interval or, or steady state? I'm curious on, we're learning more and more about the, the benefits of exercise and um, for mood and, and so forth. So it's not just the, the isolated muscles that are getting the benefits. Can What's your sort of view on the, the, the global effects from these interval training? Well, you know, I, I follow some of this work with interest, obviously a lot of work around myokines and these various uh, signals that can be released from muscle. Uh, my colleague, Mark Tarnopolsky uh, refers to exerkines. Again, mm -hmm. this idea of these compounds that are released in response to exercise, uh, not from traditional glands, but from skeletal muscle. And this might be a way for some of the inter-organ communication that goes on, and it might be a way to possibly explain some of these changes that we see in, in distal tissues, or at least tissues that are not directly challenged or involved to a greater extent in, in the exercise. Certainly, there's been some work looking at different levels of changes in IL-6 or other things with the role of intensity, but I, I don't think we've fully teased out the role of intensity versus duration, as well as how acute changes in some of these circulating compounds, how that directly then impacts the regulation of other uh, tissues, uh, at, le at least not in 
whole body exercising humans. There's a lot of elegant work, of course, going on in, in, in animals. Yeah, right. Okay. We'll see what happens in the future. All right. I want to go through a few uh, systems and areas and conditions where HIT or interval training has been um, researched. I'll start with the obvious ones, cardiometabolic health. Again, um, I know there's probably like fierce debate about the, the superiority over intervals versus steady state. Um, but as, as we mentioned, you know, they're both a, a viable option, but how do that, how does it compare to the, the longer duration steady state in terms of uh, cardiometabolic health? Um, and again, you know, when we compare, is it that apples to apples, mm-hmm. apples to oranges comparison, that's an important consideration. I, I would say, you know, the, um, it's not fully settled, at least in some people's eyes, but I think to, you know, there's almost a new systematic review coming out every month and it seems that way. now making the conclusion that when you do this apples to apples comparison, you see greater improvements in cardiorespiratory fitness with an interval based approach. And, you know, that is in healthy individuals. There's evidence from systematic reviews, meta-analyses, in individuals with cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes, hypertension, metabolic syndrome. So this is one area and it's probably because fitness is, is, you know, relatively easy to measure. It doesn't require Mm. invasive techniques. Um, I would say there's general and growing consensus that intensity matters when it comes to the boost in cardiorespiratory fitness for all of these other markers, maybe with the exception of glycemic control, where there's at least some evidence that you could point to that maybe you can see some superior benefits in terms of glucose control, you know, insulin sensitivity, however you want to call it or measure it uh, with an interval based approach. But uh, I would say most of these other health related markers, interval training is a way to potentially get there a little faster. So there's this time savings or a time efficiency aspect, but generally speaking, there's not compelling evidence that you're going to see superior benefits in, in any of these other markers aside from fitness, uh, at least, you know, and most of our studies have been small proof of concept studies. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not doing large scale randomized clinical trials. There is growing RCTs, but they tend to be relatively modest in size. And so, you know, the most comprehensive study to date would be something that was known as the, uh, the generation 100 study, which was actually a five year RCT in older individuals. Uh, mean age was around 73 looking at continuous, moderate intensity training, high intensity interval training, or basically a mix of both on various indices, including mortality was, was an outcome. They did not have a non-exercise control group. And the general conclusion from that effort, which involved over 1500 participants was all the exercise interventions were good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They didn't, you know, they weren't able to say that people die less, uh, compared to sedentary behavior because there was no non-exercise, uh, control. So, uh, again, point being there's increasingly RCTs being conducted, but we're still limited in terms of the size, scope, diversity of individuals that have been studied. Yeah, sure. Um, and you touched upon the elderly there. Um, and people might maybe intuitively think that high intensity equals risk and danger. Are there any contraindications with um, people with cardiovascular disease? So uh, again, so two ways to answer that. And with the caveat that I'm not a medical doctor, I'm not a clinician, but I do read this research with interest. And for my book, I interviewed a number of leading cardiologists on this specific topic. My view is, of course, there are some conditions, unstable angina, for example, where high intensity exercise is absolutely contraindicated, but I would balance that with just the large number of studies that have applied interval training in diseased individuals. Uh, Again, cardiovascular disease, coronary artery disease, coronary heart disease, type two diabetes, metabolic syndrome. And so broadly speaking, people don't need to be afraid of interval training. Um, And most of the studies are coming to the conclusion 
that it's generally safe. And if there is an elevated risk with more vigorous exercise, it's relatively small. Of course, we would like to be able to identify those individuals who might be susceptible to an event. Uh, again, I'm not a clinician, but my understanding is that still remains very, very challenging. Uh, and even in our own studies, of course, if uh, you know our studies with type 2 diabetics or individuals with type 2 diabetes, we um, ha have them screened with a 12 lead ECG stress test uh, beforehand, and we're quite cautious in, in that regard. Uh, but you know, there are many studies that have applied this, and there are many uh, cardiac rehab centers around the world. You know, mm -hmm. Norway would be a leader who have actively adopted an interval training strategy um, as frontline or mainstream approaches in a cardiac rehab setting, you know, and that goes back to the work in the late seventies and the eighties, uh, Katarina Meyer was doing work out of Germany, looking at very vigorous interval training, um, in the rehabilitation of, uh, cardiac right. disease patients. Yeah. Um, and I want to come back to the, the traffic light system, because one thing that struck me when I started um, looking to work again was, uh, this concept of intensity, like, there's the high intense interval training. I've deliberately called it interval training today because, um, you know, I've traditionally had the view that it's all out and I've heard these Wingate tests are, are some of the hardest exercise you'll ever do on the planet. Um, but you've done research more on this just interval walking. So you can maybe meet patients where they're at with their fitness and just sort of ramping up the intensity moderately and then backing off seems to have um, benefits above and beyond the steady state. So can you comment on like that, that green, you know, the, meeting patients where they're at and just any sort of extra effort may be beneficial. Yeah, sure. And, you know, again, I'm not a behavioral expert, but when I talk to my, some of my behavioral colleagues, they'll make the point that, you know, in part it's, it's reframing the issue for these um, individuals or these patients, you know, many of them are unable to do continuous exercise of any nature for 30 minutes or so. And so mm -hmm. rather than feeling like a failure, if they're unable to get through their workout, the message is, you know what? you go, you take a break, you do it again, and, and that's okay, right? And then you're adopting this interval training strategy that is used by world-class athletes. So there, there can be a bit of a mind shift there in the way that people think about this. To your point, interval training or intermittent exercise, the range is tremendous in terms of absolute and relative intensities during the efforts. You know, this is a audio only interview, but one of the slides that I love to show when I'm presenting this work is it's from a review from a couple of years ago, showing two individuals on very diverse ends of the fitness spectrum, doing a four by four minute interval approach. And it's showing a heart rate tracing from a coronary heart disease patient and an Olympic athlete. And both individuals are working at 90 to 95% mm -hmm. of their individual maximal heart rate. And it's just a striking example of how this approach can be widely applied um, to various uh, in, in individuals. Yeah, right. And yet, I've heard you discuss a study of the interval walking. So in um, and can you describe that and the, the benefits there? Sure. Uh, so this is uh, this some work out of uh, Denmark. Uh, but for example, they have looked at interval walking versus continuous steady state walking in older obese individuals with type two diabetes. And this is just, I would call it gentle interval walking where they would slightly pick up the pace. So their heart rate was maybe five beats higher than the continuous. And then they drop it down to being five beats lower. So on average, the two groups were doing exercise that was quite moderate, 66% of maximal heart rate on average. So this is just moderate exercise but one was basically doing light to moderate interval walking and the other was doing continuous walking. After a couple of months, what they found was the interval walkers had a greater improvement in their cardiorespiratory fitness, a greater improvement in their 24 hour blood sugar. And actually they lost a little bit more body fat compared to the continuous walkers, despite the fact that mean intensity was the same and total exercise volume was uh, the same. Now, both groups were better than a control group who did uh, nothing. Uh, but again, it's, it's evidence like that, that even this, what I would call gentle or green zone intermittent exercise may provide some benefits beyond what we just see with the traditional continuous approach. 
Do you think people uh, um, unknowingly doing interval training, you know, they go for a ride on their bike and there's some hills or they, you know, um, go for a walk, there might be a flight of stairs and so forth. And this probably gets back to my sort of ecological question to start with. Like we probably, we don't, we didn't evolve on a, like a treadmill per se, like there's ebbs and flows in, in our exercise. So I don't know. Um, do you think people are um, doing it anyway or, and or maybe they just need, they could consider adjusting you know, the route they go on or, you know, for the next three traffic, uh, next sort of three power poles, I'll, I'll push a bit further and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's the classic um, style of training known as fartlek training, which is speed play in, in Swedish, right? Where it's just this voluntary or free form, unstructured, I'm going to go hard for a bit, I'm going to back off, but you're not really looking at a watch or your heart rate monitor or anything like that. And so, of course, many team sports, involve this type of pattern already and you know people if if we're exercising outside with natural elevations and that we we naturally will encounter uh this you know and and i think for individuals who primarily exercise inside on stationary equipment the takeaway there is you know you you actually have to manually mm. you know set the workout or change the load uh but you know when you're exercising outside to your point it's a more natural way of, of doing this, uh, you know, on, on the evolutionary perspective, I, I, I was, uh, taken by, uh, Daniel Lieberman's book, uh, yeah, exercise, which came out, you know, where he, he makes the point of delivering treadmills to Africa and, you know, people looked at him like he was insane. Right. And it was just yeah. this striking example that, you know, we, we can, we can make this very complicated sometimes, but it doesn't have to be that hard. Yeah. Yeah. I loved, uh, Daniel Lieberman's book through classic, um, exercised, um, which yeah, come. I'll, I'll get to that point about um motivation, um body composition. Again, there's probably you know um zealots and diehards on each side. Um, I suppose from the the podcast we've done through here, overall my view is that like um this came from Herman Ponzer who um studied with um Dan Lieberman that um diet's probably their best way of losing weight and exercise is good for everything else. However, having said that, it seems like there is some benefits to maybe body composition um, it, with exercise and particularly uh, interval training. So what's your sort of overall view on exercise and interval training for body composition? Yeah, I, and I would agree entirely with the point you just made that, you know, we, we use nutrition to co control body mass, body size, body composition largely and exercise for everything else, in particular health-related effects. You know, like many of the other health related indices that we were talking about, I think most of the systematic reviews right now would suggest that interval training is another option. It can get you there a little bit faster. Um, there are some individual studies, including some work from our own lab, which suggests there's some greater changes in body composition or slight improvements in, in lean body mass mm -hmm. in particular. If you hand wave a bit, you could maybe speculate that some types of interval training may elicit a protein synthetic response, and you might be seeing some slight muscle hypertrophy, but that's very difficult to measure in most uh, studies. But to your point, you're right. There are some studies that suggest slightly greater improvements in body composition with an interval-based approach and slightly greater changes in, in lean mass as opposed to continuous uh, modern intensity exercise. And what about um, concomitant training where people are trying to increase muscle mass? Um, there's that sort of old view that they're, you know, diametrically opposed aerobic exercise and, um, you know, resistance training. And I uh, once used to think that HIT was sort of sat in the middle where it doesn't compromise any potential sort of gains in muscle mass. Is there much data or consensus around that? Yeah, um, th th there's certainly, you know, well, how's this? My takeaways are, are this. And, you know, the first one is it depends on the individual, obviously, both their inherent biological variability, mm -hmm. but also what are their goals, right? And, and so if your goal is just general health and fitness, then sort of body weight style hybrid interval training can be extremely effective, you know, you're not necessarily going to see the improvements in cardiorespiratory fitness that you would if you did a completely interval-based cardio approach, and you're not going to see the gains in 
strength and muscle hypertrophy as if you're doing heavy weightlifting in the gym to failure all the time, but it's pretty good in between. And so yeah. I, I think that is an important consideration. You know, what are your, your ultimate goals? Uh, but absolutely, you know, if the pandemic has, you know, taught us something, we've really had to innovate, right? Where for a long time in many parts of the world, fitness facilities were closed. And so we were going back to these old school fitness regimes, which can be very, very effective. And again, mm. you know, a lot of personal trainers, of course, knew this before the pandemic, but it's, it's really forced people to, to innovate and just adopt some of these principles. Yep. So I want to go into more distal areas. And I know, as you, you said, you're, this is not your area of expertise, but I'm, I'm sure you've been following it. Um, I'm curious on, there's a bit of emerging literature, it seems on like cognition, mood, um, around using interval training. Um, BDNF seems to be induced um, from interval training. Is that from the muscle? I know it's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, but I think it comes yeah, from the One gut. of these circulating factors, certainly there is some evidence to suggest that maybe with higher intensity exercise, you can see a greater uh, change. But again, it's the, the, at least again, in you know, there's some good mechanistic work in animals. And again, as you alluded to, not my primary expertise, although there, there is some, you know, uh, at my own institution, McMaster, we have some uh, both behavioral cognition experts, uh, you know, from that psychological approach. And we have some very good neuroscientists who are looking at brain imaging, fMRI, um, you know, utilizing those techniques, trying to get at these questions of what's the relationship between fitness. And if we train people in different ways, does that lead to uh, divergent uh, responses? I, I would say certainly compared to the muscle and cardiorespiratory information that we have, um, there, there's less information available about brain health and brain remodeling, but to give a very practical example, there's been some work by my colleagues looking at activity breaks, short activity breaks, promoting student learning, at least as assessed by outcomes on standardized tests. And so they would have these groups that were just taking um, you know, learning continuously throughout the lecture, or at least the instructor was teaching continuously, taking a break where they might get a chance to go on their phone for a bit or talk to their neighbor or an activity break, very short. And the message was very clear that the performance went up. So mm -hmm. uh, again, you know, supportive of this link, you know, we always hear this link between physical and brain health or body and brain health, but there, there's certainly emerging science around that. And, uh, I think the evidence is encouraging that these short bouts of vigorous exercise can be, um, efficacious. Yeah. Um, on that note, you, there's been discussions recently around these idea of exercise snacks. So, um, again, this is probably my old mindset was, you know, you had to do 20 minutes or whatever, and you had to go all out and a bit of a break and repeat. Um, but it seems like even sort of efforts spread out through the day um, has some benefits. So you could probably do that, you know, if you're at, at an office or a building every couple of hours, do a flight of stairs. Um, yeah. What, what's emerging with these sort of exercise snacks? Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, uh, again, small, I, I call them, uh, you know, pilot studies or small proof of concept studies, uh, some work from us and some other groups uh, around the world showing that. And, you know, I, I should say as well, some of this work was informed conceptually by older work that had, for example, looked at 30 minutes of continuous exercise or three 10-minute sessions of exercise spread through the day. And some of that work suggested that actually some of the improvements that you might see in blood pressure or blood sugar control might be a little bit better with the broken up approach. Wow. And so it's really just an extension of that work saying, okay, we know these, you know, three 20 second hard bursts within a 10 minute period that works. Well, what about if we spread those through the day? And we have shown that you can see measurable changes in cardiorespiratory fitness, some uh, glycemic control indices. Now they're not as great as you would see if you keep the exercise snacks close together with short periods of recovery, right? And that probably yeah. just reflects the fact that 
you know, the greater the recovery period, the less the subsequent stress on the body. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but you know, there, there hasn't been a lot of systematic comparisons of protocols, but suffice to say, exercise snacking as an intervention, uh, can be efficacious and, uh, the, the more you do the better. And so I think this resonates with individuals, you know, as many of us are returning to our workplaces, many work in office towers, a few flights of stairs in the morning at lunch before you leave for the day, or if you are still working from home, setting your fitness timer or your app to ping you every hour or two, you're going to get up and do a series of air squats at your desk or bang out a set of burpees at your home office. That can be enough to sort of move the needle in terms of fitness. Of course, it depends where you're starting out, uh, but exercise snacking works. Yeah, wow. Um, I just want to come back to the circle back to the brain. I had one question on um, motivation. And again, I know you're, is not your area of expertise, but you do follow it. One of the things that struck me from Dan Lieberman's book is this is, I was asking about evolution, like our bodies are sort of designed to move, but our brains don't want to do it. And sort of like, same with food, like we, our, we're sort of wired to eat, you know, um, hedonic foods and it's not good for us. But yeah, our brains want us to conserve those calories to turn into babies. Um, and it probably seems counterintuitive that our brains or our, would, would be motivated to do like this all out efforts. Um, but that may not be the case. You, um, there's some research on like enjoyment and motivation in interval training. Can you speak around that? Yeah. And this is one area where, you know, it, it really, you, you can see some real cat fights in, in this area. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I would observe, I think generally speaking, there's two camps and I think there's a traditional camp who would say, if exercise is above lactate threshold, if it's deemed uncomfortable, people are unlikely to do it and it will be a complete and utter failure as a public health initiative. Now, um, of course, what we've been telling people largely to do for five decades, arguably hasn't been that effective mm. either when we look at physical activity participation surveys. So, you know, my view would be other ideas welcome <laughs> if, if possible. Yeah, yeah. And I think there is another camp, if I can use that term of behavioral researchers who would say, no, no, wait a minute. You know, it seems that people are more than willing to trade off some temporary higher discomfort if they know that they can get away with less total exercise ah, or they're more right. than willing to exercise, exercise vigorously for a short period of time, as opposed to a slightly less vigorous pace for a longer period of time. It depends when you ask them, are you asking them during the exercise bout or are you asking them in recovery? And so to your point, there is definitely evidence that would support the viability of interval exercise uh, and again, you have a, a debate right now. And even if you look at the public health guidelines around the world, everyone is presumably reading the same science. The physical activity guidelines for Americans and many others have at least removed this previous requirement that physical activity had to be sustained for 10 minutes at a time in order to count. There was never really good evidence for that. And I, and that's, you know, I think it's a positive change that that requirement has been removed because it's at least a nodding appreciation of the fact that some of this other evidence has shown that, you know, shorter periods of physical activity may be beneficial. Now, you know, the American guidelines don't really address at all high intensity interval training, mm -hmm. whereas the UK guidelines uh, make specific reference to them. So again, different guidelines around the world certainly, you know, we're not at the point where anyone is suggesting 15 minutes of interval exercise a week is, is sufficient. Yep. Um, and I appreciate why the guidelines change slowly. Generally, they want to see evidence that mortality risk has gone down. Um, you know, that it, uh, uh, people are developing cardiovascular disease or type two diabetes less if they do this type of exercise compared to that. And to be fair, there's just really not that level of grade yeah, okay. A evidence right now. And so, again, I appreciate why uh, many governments and agencies are, are being conservative. Yeah. And have you received much feedback yourself 
of people adopting hit and their surprisement and enjoying it or at least um, sustaining oh, it? No, a- a- absolutely. Right. And, you know, we, again, we've, we've been subject to criticism for various reasons and, you know, it's all, it's all part of, uh, you know, it's, it, it's again, healthy in science and people can criticize our exactly. work. Uh, you know, small sample sizes, sometimes you overstate your findings. You know, I, again, I, I think we're in good company there because there's others have done this as well. But what I would observe, you know, and it probably one of my biggest takeaways is every year, the American College of Sports Medicine conducts a worldwide survey of top fitness trends. And, you know, HIT has been a perennial favorite for years mm. now. You know, mm. sometimes in the top spot, sometimes it drops to number five. Arguably, sometimes you will see HIT and bodyweight exercise and something else within the top three. They're all variations on a theme. My point being, clearly, this is not a fad that's going to go away. You know, interval training has become mainstream. There's a segment of society that really likes this type of training. We're seeing it adopted in clinical settings. I think it's here to stay. And clearly, in my opinion, it's a viable exercise strategy. Even if 5% of the population adopts it, uh, you know, I, I don't think we need to be bashing other approaches. And that's why, you know, I'm not here taking shots at the public health guidelines or saying, oh, traditional cardio, that does nothing for you. Clearly it does. And, mm. you know, I, I don't mean to get on the soapbox at all, but I, I just have so little time for these scientists that are criticizing the work of others uh, who are trying to promote physical activity interventions that have some science behind them. I just don't understand it. No, I agree. Um, so to the practical applications, you've been um, researching a little bit on stair climbing. Um, so obviously, yeah, as I said, like the, the, the traditional, the, the original protocols seem, and I really want to know how, how tough are those Wingate tests? They seem brutal. Yeah. They are. And, can you describe and, them? Uh, can you describe them? The sure, ab- absolutely. So the, 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 the best way I can describe it for most people is if you were to go to your local gym or if you have a, you know, an electronically braked bike in your basement or an ergometer, you set the setting to the highest workload. So 20 out of 20, such that, mm-hmm. at, you know, within 10 seconds of pedaling the bike, your legs, the cadence starts to slow down. Just it's, it's so hard to turn the pedals, you know, and your muscles are just burning. And the, the bikes that we use are these specialized bikes that, you know, in that description that I just gave you, you'd get to the point where you can't turn the pedal anymore. You know, you're, (laughs) you're, you're not strong enough to overcome the load, but these bikes, they just drop the load enough Ah. so that you can continue to give this all out effort with variable load cycling. So it's really hard to mimic for individuals unless they have these specialized bikes. But suffice to say, a 30-second Wingate test is the longest 30 seconds of, <laughs> of your life. Most, most people, the first time they do a Wingate test, uh, experience that. And you know, again, people would say, well, why the heck would you ever want to do that repeatedly? But the point is, it doesn't require that level of effort in order to, exactly, to see yeah. the benefits. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a challenging load for sure. Okay. <laughs> I've always been curious. Um, so sort of in contrast, you've been looking at stair climbing cause that's uh, one of the things that really jumped out at me is you, you're trying to make this practical, practical and accessible to people. Um, people can often find stairs at the station or a park or at the office or some so forth. So you've done a bit of research on, on stair climbing. Can you describe some of the benefits from it? Yeah, we have. And, and so the idea there was, taking interval training out of the lab. And so we used that three by 20 second approach, but whereas in the lab setting, we were using these all out as hard as you can go protocols. Number one, in part for safety reasons, we didn't want to tell people sprint up the stairs as if you're saving your child from an oncoming car or fleeing a burning building. We started to use words like a challenging pace or a vigorous pace. And rather than prescribing exercise and saying, we want you to hit 90% maximal heart rate, we would say, ascend the stairs as safely and as vigorously as possible. And then we would ask them to rate that on a zero to 10 scale. You know, when we would typically see a seven or eight. So this is a challenging or a hard pace, but it's not this all out as hard as you can go effort. And typically, 
people would self-select efforts that would demand 85, 90% of maximal heart rate during the individual efforts. But when we measured their heart rate over the entire 10 minute period, it was about 80% of maximum. So the, the change there was rather than prescribing the exercise, trying to give them cues as to where to hit the zone, right? And so, you know, it's not a pedestrian pace, but again, you're not fleeing a burning building. And what we saw was that was nonetheless effective for improving their cardiorespiratory fitness, very similar to what we'd seen in our cycling-based studies. You know, we will routinely see a one-met improvement in cardiorespiratory fitness with six weeks of low-volume interval training. And again, that's about a 10% improvement for, for the average individual. And it's that one-met higher, which is really linked to those lower indices of mortality or lower risks of, of dying. So a one-met change is, is quite... Um, you know, th there was, there was a method in trying to look for this one met change and it, it's very consistent and robust. Uh, and so the takeaway there is, I think it's an empowering message. The specific type of workout doesn't matter so much, mm -hmm. you know, as long as you get into this zone. And again, ideally you get your, your heart rate above 80% for 10 minutes. However, you achieve that, that can be effective to boost your fitness in a relatively short period of time, a matter of weeks. Um, on that, does it matter what muscle groups you're activating? I often thought that the, the, the legs and the glutes, um, because that can generate or create that sort of energy crisis better than, say, boxing or, I don't know, the, with the ropes and so forth, maybe rowing's an intermediate one. Is there any sort of research or any thoughts or preferences on that? Yeah, there's an old adage, you know, that your heart doesn't know what your muscles are doing. And so what that means is I, I, I think from a cardiovascular conditioning perspective, it doesn't matter so much. So you need to engage a sufficient amount or mass of muscle in order to get the cardiovascular response to see the changes. Now, when it comes to the changes in glucose control, it might matter, nah, you know, because yeah. if, if you can, let's say you're using only your legs, well, the load per active muscle is going to be higher. And so potentially then the changes that you see in these glucose transporters and the mitochondrial biogenesis is going to be greater than if that stress, if you will, is spread out over the entire body. So it may depend on the health metric that you're interested in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering about um, glucose control. And finally, on the practical side of things, um, probably this is one epiphany I've had is like, you don't really have to overthink it about, you know, duration and um, rest periods. Can you sort of paint the picture of the spectrum from like the all outs to, you know, an interval could be up to five minutes, couldn't it? Yeah. Again, another controversial topic, right? So, you know, <laughs> you, you will see, you know, there are, there are published studies on athletes where they will use 16 minute bouts of interval training, right? right. So it, again, it, it really, it ranges, but you know, I think for most individuals or, or if you asked most people to define interval training, it's, it's bouts of five minutes or less, but again, there's no hard and fast uh, rule uh, there. Uh, and, you know, to your point, because I'm often asked, what's the optimal protocol? And I think for the vast majority of people, there isn't one. And, and I, you know, I'll, I'll use the analogy too of investing in the stock market, right? You may pick a stock that you hit a home run with, or it could be a dud. And so just like in investing strategy, you spread the risk around. I, I, I think that applies a lot for many individuals who are using exercise for, for health, you know, hit the body different ways. Ideally that sustains motivation. That being said, if you find a specific interval method and protocol that you like, and that's going to get you to stick with it over the long term, go for it. Right. Um, you know, if we're talking about elite, you mm. know, truly elite athletes, then we're going to dial that in a, a lot more. But for the vast majority of people, I don't think it matters. And probably that varied approach is going to be their best bet. Yeah, great. Now, just finally, I'm curious on some factors that may influence your response to uh, interval exercise. You, you've researched on this and there's been some published studies. Um, firstly, there seems to be some differences between the sex and the response to adaptations. Yeah, so that is something we're following up on. Uh, some of our work, some work from others have suggested in particular glucose control or some of the changes that you see in glucose transporters 
maybe blunted a little bit, if I can use that term in females compared to males. Uh, that being said, we've done acute studies looking at gene responses. And for the most, you know, so I, I think point number one is clearly both males and females can benefit from interval right. training. Yep. There is some evidence that women may have some blunted responses specifically related to carbohydrate metabolism. Now that may be related to the fact that they have some greater changes when it comes to lipid metabolism. And I think this generally fits with some of the evidence out there that, that females may, uh, you know, rely more on lipid at a given absolute intensity. There's some emerging evidence around cardiovascular responses and potential sex-based differences. So this is a very active area of research. We know a lot about interval training responses in males and likely white males, right? And so like many areas of science, like many areas of society, I think bringing the diversity lens is important. And I think you're seeing a lot of that work going on right now, a much needed work, uh, looking at individuals from various backgrounds, uh, you know, including uh, comparisons of responses between males and females. Yeah, great. It's good to hear that both both sexes do do respond. Um, fasting versus fed. So the you know you've got glycogen stored, or I, I suppose your your systemic levels of energy doesn't change that much. But if the idea is that we're trying to create this energy crisis, I'm curious on whether manipulating our energy levels has an effect. Conversely, personally, I find if I'm not sort of fed, I can't sort of have the motivation or the I don't feel like the efforts are as, as intense. So um, what's the general thoughts around, you know, nutrition around acutely around exercise? Yeah, clearly uh, ex- nutrition can affect acute and chronic responses to exercise. I think generally they're subtle changes. And so again, you know, versions on a theme here, but for most, you know, if let's say you exercise in the morning after an overnight fast, you're likely to burn a couple more grams from lipid than you are from carbohydrate. If you're not a morning person, or you're someone who has to have some food in your belly in order to be active, that message is meaningless for you. Right. And so I don't think, I think people again should be guided by what they like and enjoy Mm -hmm. what they prefer and not necessarily getting fixated on manipulating nutrition around the timing of their workouts. Although clearly that can have some effects that add up over time. And, you know, there's work looking at training in a glycogen reduced state, showing that that can potentiate some uh, responses, um, you know, which then when you uh, compete in a fully carbohydrate replete state that that may offer some, uh, some advantages. Yeah. And I saw a study a couple of years ago, and it's only one small study. Um, there's been a, an explosion of interest in like circadian biology and their, you know, evolution again. Like it seems like maybe afternoons, I think they're a little bit stronger and fitter and so forth. But there was one study not that long ago showing that HIT was, um, the effects were attenuated during the performing in the morning versus the afternoon. Is again, there any sort of thoughts or concerns around timing? Um, again, I, I think some of these effects may be real and subtle. Now, if, you know, it's a bit like nutritional supplements and, you know, what the experts will tell you, if the base of the pyramid is set, so you're doing everything perfectly in terms of your sleep, (laughs) you're doing everything perfectly in terms of your training, Mm -hmm. then maybe, you know, that carrot at the top or that slight, you know, this, this nutritional intervention may have a slight benefit to you again, if everything else is perfect, but for the vast majority of us, the pyramid's not perfect. And so what that means is the variability around these subtle changes will just overwhelm the, the effect, you know, so are are there subtle effects? I, I believe absolutely there are. Uh, for some athletes, they can harness that or some individuals who are doing everything else really, really well and consistently. But for the vast majority of us, I think we should focus more on the fundamentals and the big picture things. Uh, you know, it's a bit like, you know, get the, the macronutrient stuff right before you're playing around with the, the small stuff. Yeah, perfect. And finally, more of a, a technical you know, question. I think it's Michael Rista. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work has been looking recently about um 
the hormetic effect of exercise and the addition of antioxidants can blunt the benefits of um, exercise. Are you familiar with it? Any thoughts on like, should people be mindful, particularly with hot kit, if, if it's around that sort of energy sensing and is there anything that might interfere with the, the adapt, adaptations? Yeah, you know, it's really fascinating. It brings up this age old question of, is it absolute workload or relative stress that triggers mm. the response, right? And so, you know, an analogy is exercise at altitude or exercise under hypoxic conditions. Um, it can feel very, very challenging, right? And it's very, very hard, but the vast majority of people detrain when they're at altitude, you know, they're, they're, they feel like they're working just as hard, yeah. but their cardiac output is reduced. They lose muscle power. And so, uh, I think for some of these other, uh, it's a bit like, you know, low glycogen training, we can do lots of things to create a more stressful state for the body, but does that necessarily just translate into superior adaptations or does it actually hinder the training response? And, you know, I, I think you can find evidence on, on both sides, but certainly there's some evidence to say that, uh, antioxidant supplementation can blunt some of these, uh, responses, mm -hmm. Uh, so I'm not trying to hedge, but I, I just don't think we have clear answers around one of these. And fundamentally it comes back to this idea of, like I say, absolute load or relative stress, what one is most critical, probably they both are, and there's going to be some optimal, uh, middle ground there. Yeah. All right. Um, so yeah, we've yeah, been going for almost now. It's been fascinating. Uh, I just want, yeah, we'll wrap up now, but. I'm curious to see where you're going to head in the future. It sounds like you are you transitioning from more the molecular to the sort of practical application or where's your interest lie in the future? Yeah, I, I, I like to tell my students that, you know, we, we, we play in different sandboxes. So we're not a diabetes lab. We're not a molecular biology lab. We're not an elite human performance lab, but we can sort of dabble and hopefully contribute a little bit in all of those areas. And I think our best studies are the ones that combine all of those aspects. Mm. And so we'll, we'll continue to do that work, but I would say generally we're, we're leaning back more towards the, uh, uh, the application of, of this work. And, you know, you may have heard this term team science, you know, we're trying to collaborate with behavioral experts, uh, medical doctors, a, a, a real team approach to try and advance this field, including uh, conducting some of these larger uh, studies. So certainly, you know, a portion of my funding is to look at basic mechanisms of human physiological remodeling to exercise, but increasingly we're interested in this idea of, of translating this work yeah. to hopefully uh, enhance health-related outcomes in various individuals. So final question, you wrote a book uh, recently, the, the One Minute Workout, a um, couple of questions around that. What motivated you to do that and what's the response been? So what motivated me, again, I've, I've in, become increasingly interested in science communication um, you know, doing things much like we're doing right here, talking about the science, trying to translate it. And so the book would not have been possible without my co-author, Christopher Shulgin, uh, who's a journalist. Um, uh. And Chris, Chris helped to teach me ways to try and translate the message. And so ideally, we got to the point where I was happy enough with the scientific message. And Chris was happy enough and felt it read in an accessible and hopefully uh, compelling manner. And, you know, it's, it's difficult for a scientist, right. To try, because we're so cautious and we want to add, well, you know, we're, we, hmm. we want to hedge on everything. Hmm. And, you know, I'd say, well, we have to say it this way to stay true to the science. And Chris would say, well, that's friggin' boring. No one's interested <laughs> in that. Right. So we had to get to this middle ground. I would say the response has been uh, tremendous. You know, we were, fortunate enough to be named to a couple of bestseller uh, lists. Um, certainly, I think I've been able to reach an audience that otherwise would not have been exposed to my work. And it's led to other opportunities to do uh, various media interviews, podcasts, television, again, really to all sign, you know, at the end of the day, you hope your work makes an impact. And traditionally, our metrics are scientific citations and things like that and H indexes. But when you know your work is resonating with individuals and, you know, that's, that's a tremendous feeling as well to, to, you know, think that you've had small, some small impact on, yeah, on absolutely. people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. 
I was going to ask, yeah, that it must be satisfying taking those, you know, the, the learnings from the research and being able to convert that to the layman. And, and yeah, I think one of the, as I said, the one of the reasons I invite you on is because you are communicating it to the layman and, and making it more accessible to people rather than those Wingate tests for the elite. It's the, um, it's the people who are unfit or um, maybe not lacking, uh, having as much motivation or got some health condition that, yeah, they can do this. So has that been a reward for you? Oh, a hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you know, and the other thing I would say that like, I do things like this because I like it, but increasingly I think universities are recognizing that this is an important thing that some of their members do, you know, again, the traditional metrics are research and teaching. Mm. Yeah. You did a little bit of service. Maybe that meant on serving on some scientific committee, but I, I think increasingly you're seeing universities see the value of having their researchers out talking to the public and again, trying to bridge this gap, you know, engage in this scientific uh, communication. You know, I, I, I won't go off too far on a tangent here, but clearly, you know, in a world that is seemingly increasingly becoming devoid of facts and <laughs> the truth is whatever people make it, I, I, I think it's, you know, my colleague Stu Phillips will say, you're either on the outside looking in or you're in the game, right? And so I, I you know, knowing that, hey, I can, I, I've written a, a, a popular book, right? I made some money by the writing of a book. Does that taint my science? I, I would suggest no, but of course people will accuse you of that. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I would rather be the person who knows the science, has engaged in the science and is trying to translate that than have other people talk or interpret my work and they may not have a have a complete understanding so you know lots of voices are important but the more voices people hear uh they can come to their own conclusions and i, I think that's important yeah absolutely well congratulations on the book and um yeah as I said you communicate it so well i think it gives people hope and motivation to engage in some of these interval exercise and and reap the benefits so um where can people purchase the book from uh, pretty much anywhere. I know it is available in Australia, but it's available online. Uh, there's an audio book uh, available to it. Uh, if people want to go to my website, just uh, martingabala.com. I created that sort of as a one-stop shop so people can learn about the research. They can learn about the book. Uh, my colleague and I, Stuart Phillips, we've collaborated with some of our institutional colleagues on something called a MOOC, a massive open online course through the Coursera online learning platform. Uh, the course content is freely available to anyone. So it's basically a series of uh, five minute video segments. Uh, the course is called Hacking Exercise for Health. And so, uh, you know, again, getting back to the science communication aspect, but you can go to the, the website and uh, just learn a little bit more about uh, our work uh, and the book and the course. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to looking into that. Martin, it's been an absolute pleasure for me. I'm sure our listeners have got gems out of it. So thank you so much for your time for being so gracious in um, you know, donating your time to us. So thanks again. Thanks so much for your interest. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice. Thank you.